0: This is The Guardian. Gene editing, what once sounded like the stuff of science fiction, is fast becoming a clinical reality.
1: I no longer have experienced severe pain and stopped my life just to be in the hospital for long periods of time. My children no longer have the fear of losing their mom to sickle cell disease.
0: Last week in London, scientists, lawyers and ethicists from all over the world gathered at the 3rd Annual Summit on Human Genome Editing and heard just how life-changing this treatment can be.
1: I'm able to work a full time job. And at one point in my life, I stopped planning for the future because I felt I didn't have one now I can dream again without limitations.
0: It's now only a matter of time before gene editing moves from clinical trials to hospital wards. But there are still huge questions about access, price, and the ethics of this cutting edge therapy.
2: A Chinese scientist who sparked international controversy when he claimed he'd created the world's first gene edited babies has been jailed for three years.
0: So today we're asking how will gene editing change medicine and will everyone reap the rewards? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample and this is Science Weekly. Hannah Devlin, you're a Guardian science correspondent and you've been covering the recent third international summit on genome editing. For people who know nothing about gene editing, what is it?
2: So gene editing is altering a person or an animal or plant's DNA and you can pretty much think of it as editing a Word document but in in this case the letters being changed are the letters in your genetic code. So it could be adding in some new material or deleting something or making a change and gene editing is already used in genetic modified crops and animals but it's also increasingly relevant in the clinic uh, for treating genetic diseases.
0: And this gene editing has really been made viable by a technique called CRISPR, invented by two scientists, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuelle Charpentier, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020 for their work on this. Take us through how CRISPR itself works.
2: Yeah, so CRISPR has been completely revolutionised this whole field and really widened up the range of applications that you could use gene editing for. The really clever thing about CRISPR is it provides a way of scientists or doctors being able to target very precise stretches of the genome. So you can literally pick a bit of the genome that you want to target and make a snip in the DNA at that point, and then send in the edit that you want to introduce, and then the DNA repairs itself, and you've basically made your edit. So I think it's that precision that it's allowed scientists to have that suddenly means they've got this whole range of um, changes that they can introduce.
0: Now, when we talk about gene editing, the, the potential application that gets the most attention is the idea of editing genes in human embryos. Why has that attracted so much controversy?
2: The big one is if you change the genes in an embryo at a very early stage, then that will make those changes in every cell in the body. And when that embryo continues to grow, those changes will be included in, in the sperm and egg or eggs. And so the big thing is that those changes that you've introduced will be passed down to every future generation. And so because this is a very, still a very new technology, and although CRISPR is very precise, it's not perfect there's a risk that you could introduce unwanted changes as well as the ones you're aiming to introduce. So you're making a potentially permanent change to the human gene pool. Most of the time, that issue of not wanting to pass on a damaging gene to the next generation, you can solve that just by doing screening, so going for IVF and having your embryo screen to check that you've not passed on the, the mutation. And so there are only really quite rare situations where You'd have a couple that have, you know, mutations from both sides on both, you know, both copies of the gene where they could only have a healthy baby through gene editing. And then I think, um, you know, another thing that gets brought up sometimes is the idea that you could use this technology not just to correct problems in the genome so say those that are linked to very severe genetic diseases but that you could introduce changes aimed at enhancing a baby and um, then you get into this whole designer baby territory and whether that's an appropriate thing to do or not.
0: And that whole focus on sort of designer babies and some of the sort of more more distant risks it often sort of eclipses what's going on with the near-term applications for genome editing those seem to be far less controversial why is that?
2: Yeah, so I feel like in some ways this debate about designer babies, we've leapt way ahead of ourselves. Um, There aren't even many people suggesting that we should be um, moving into the clinic with editing embryos for cases of very severe disease at this point. So I, I think we can set that aside slightly. The much closer applications of gene editing are for treating Genetic diseases in children or adults where a mutation is causing problems in the way a cell in the body is working. So, for instance, in sickle cell disease, there are problems with the, red, the way red blood cells work. And the idea is that you could target those cells with gene editing to make them work in a normal, healthy way. And the first patient in that sickle cell trial, Victoria Gray, who's an African American woman and spoke very movingly about her own experience of having the treatment and being cured from sickle cell disease at the summit.
1: As early as I can remember, severe pain and trips to the hospital was just as normal to me as sunshine and a school day. The pain I would feel in my body was like being struck by lightning and hit by a freight train all at once. I would go back and forth wondering what my life would be the life that I once felt like I was only existing in I am now thriving in I stand here before you today as proof that miracles still happen and that God and science can coexist thank you for allowing me to share my story with you
0: The treatment Victoria received could be approved as early as this year. But what other conditions might gene editing be used for? I asked Claire Booth, Professor of Gene Therapy and Paediatric Immunology at University College London.
3: So if we're talking specifically about gene editing technologies using systems like CRISPR-Cas9, where you can precisely target a gene, you know, that technology is already in clinical trials for blood disorders like sickle cell disease, um, certain blood cancers, so leukemia and lymphoma, that's the CAR T-cell therapy, which has been in the news quite a lot recently. Um, and also diseases outside of the blood system, uh, like some genetic forms of blindness, diabetes and infectious diseases, including HIV. And the range just continues to expand. And there's lots of preclinical studies underway for these, uh, including more forms of cancer, uh, inherited forms of deafness and autoimmune diseases.
0: How are these therapies delivered? Because we read a lot about them being sort of one-shot treatments, which suggests it's just a needle in the arm and off you go.
3: Actually, there's, there's many different ways of delivering these, these therapies, and it slightly depends on what disease you're targeting and what part of the body you're trying to correct. And so if you take the example of sickle cell disease, that's using blood stem cells, um, which we can harvest from the blood now. They're taken to a lab they're corrected, and then they're given back to the patient, usually after some form of chemotherapy. Uh, And that's called an ex vivo approach. And that's what we've been most commonly using. But you can also develop in vivo approaches, which is essentially what you said, the shot in the arm, where you can deliver uh, a shot of the gene therapy. And those techniques are actually being pursued for sickle cell disease and other blood system disorders
0: as well. So sickle cell disease is potentially curable with this new gene editing treatment, and presumably that's life-changing news for millions of people around the world who are affected. But what actually happens now? Well,
3: once the therapy has been approved by a regulatory agency and is a licensed product, um, that's really only half of the journey. Then you've actually got to get it to the patient And that involves a number of different steps, including discussing reimbursement strategies with national health systems um, and actually taking practical steps to ensure that you can deliver these therapies. Over the past years, we've seen many of these promising therapies not reaching patients for for commercial reasons. We've seen patients with life-threatening, devastating diseases having their lives transformed with gene therapies like the ones we've heard from Victoria. But it's not commercially feasible in many cases to develop such high cost therapies in small populations of patients with rare diseases you know it's a massive challenge that we're facing at the moment and we really need to find new ways to ensure that patients in need can access these therapies
0: so there's this financial problem where there are sort of small patient groups uh, and that itself comes with you know cost for a treatment like this but there's also this issue that health services and health systems must be struggling with which is instead of a treatment that you can give to a patient for years to keep their condition under control. This is a, a sort of an intervention that is given in, in one go. And the costs with that are, are immense, which seems to make it really hard for certain countries, maybe a lot of countries, to afford.
3: Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you know, the high list price of these of these therapies is is vast, uh, in excess of, of £2 million often. But you do have to offset that with the, the costs of your know, long-term chronic disease, which these patients would, would otherwise have. I mean, people have looked into, you know, innovative reimbursement strategies and payment strategies for these high-cost therapies, you know, where you have payment by results. So a smaller payment upfront. And then as the treatment continues to work, further installment payments almost. This is just for a small number of patients, but if, if these therapies get expanded to other diseases and other patient groups, then you know, the problem's going to get even bigger. And when we're talking about diseases that affect large populations in low and middle income countries like sickle cell disease, which is you know, so more prominent in, in, in African countries and, and elsewhere around the world, this is going to become a real problem.
0: And is there anything more that we can do to tackle those problems?
3: Well, I think one good thing is that we're talking about them for a start. You know, we are beginning to talk about the equitability of access to these kinds of, of life-changing therapies. Last year, together with some colleagues from around Europe, including patient advocacy groups and uh, IPOPI, um, we founded the Agora Initiative with, with the mission of facilitating access to effective gene therapies for the treatment of patients with ultra-rare diseases in Europe, really trying to look for solutions to these challenges Unfortunately, there are a number of uh, initiatives similar to this happening uh, around the globe.
0: And Claire, I'd just like to get a sense of how optimistic you are. Do you see gene editing interventions as being clinically sort of important, having a clinical impact over the next 10 years? Or do you think some of these problems with the huge costs and the access are actually going to restymie that kind of progress?
3: I think it is important that these gene editing technologies, they are going to be um, effective for for some of the diseases that that we've talked about. But we we already have some effective gene therapies, uh, not gene editing technologies, but uh, gene addition therapy treatments um, that haven't made it to the patients who, who need it the most. So we really need to address these problems now if we're going to be able to implement these gene editing precision medicines
0: in a few years time. Anna, beyond the issue of access, do we think there are going to be any impacts at the population level if gene editing takes off?
2: Yeah, so one one thing that people pointed out is that if gene editing became really widespread for treating some genetic diseases, you might actually end up with more of those mutations being passed on and numbers of those mutations growing in society. Because, you know, for instance, if you've got a mutation that causes very severe disease that would normally lead to someone dying during childhood, but you can now treat it using gene editing, then those children will grow up healthy and potentially pass on those um, genetic mutations in the next generation. And then, you know, potentially... Meaning that more gene editing is needed to treat them. Um, and this is already speculative, but I think you know it does raise interesting questions about those kind of effects.
0: Hannah, before I let you go, what was your main takeaway after sitting through you know a lot of those talks at the conference?
2: So I think I went into the conference expecting lots of interesting discussions around the ethics of editing embryos, and I came out of the conference feeling extremely excited about all the gene editing clinical applications that are not going to involve embryos, but that are very near term and could really have a huge impact in treating lots of genetic diseases. So yeah, I think it was a really positive takeaway from the conference. But the one thing I would say is there are definitely a lot of lingering questions about access and about how these therapies are going to be made available to everyone and not just a narrow pool of people.
0: Hannah, huge thanks for coming on and taking us through all of this
2: thanks Ian good to chat
0: as always thanks again to Hannah Devlin and Claire Booth you can find a link to more reporting on this issue on the podcast page of the Guardian website this episode was sound designed by Tony Onachuku and the executive producer was Ellie Bury we'll be back on Tuesday see you then This is The Guardian.
1: The wait is over and we are back for series two of pop culture with me, Shantae Joseph. We'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again from Meghan
0: and Harry. And this is why sort of turning Harry and Meghan into polarizing figures ticks a lot of boxes because it just drives clicks. To Rihanna.
2: Rihanna rocks off at about one she just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world, just running a couple of minutes late.
1: And of course, the chaos of my life. I meet someone, I show my friends, they're like, mm, yeah, it's okay. Four weeks later, I'm sliding down the wall crying. One <laughs> week later, I message my friends, I met you guys. This is how I dated 11 people in one year. Listen now, wherever you get your podcast.